0: And welcome to Rising. Happy off-year election day to all who (laughs) celebrate and vote, perhaps.
1: (laughs) (laughs) The countdown clock begins.
0: Yes. Well, it truly begins until... The big one.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, (laughs) speaking of, we've got a lot of interesting electoral news in the pipeline today. States across the country are holding pivotal elections today for governor, state legislature, and more, offering a gauge of the national mood heading into 2024. We'll be sure to cover the results of those elections here tomorrow. But speaking specifically of 2024 in the big race, this is how it's been described, a five-alarm fire a cardiac case and need a defibrillator, <laughs> limbing on course to slowly march into the sea and drown. That is how strategists describe Joe Biden's re-election campaign after new polling shows the incumbent trailing 13 points behind an unnamed Democrat in a general election matchup with former President Trump. In a statement last week, a spokesperson to this to the Biden campaign retorted, quote, In the off year, we have built a strong operation to once again mobilize the coalition of voters that sent President Biden and Vice President Harris to the White House with a record number of votes in 2020. Nonetheless, some Democrats are going public with their cries for Biden to drop out before it's too late.
2: I've said this, Casey, this is not not breaking news. I don't think the president should run. I don't think Trump should run. I don't think President Biden should run. We have talent in the Democratic Party Um, There are some leaders in the Republican Party who are willing to take on the insurrectionists and take on Trump, and I think those candidates should be considered as well. But the whole country wants to move on.
0: On the other side of the party, operatives are insisting that Joe Biden will be the Democratic nominee in 2024, whether voters like it or not. I love Axe, but he was also a detractor of the 2020 Biden campaign. Mm -hmm. So I'm not surprised by this, but it's very disingenuous. Democrats, especially
3: Democratic strategists, know, Republican strategists, anyone who is a professional politico, hell, but reporters know. Joe Biden is the president of the United States of America. Therefore, the head of the party that he is on the ticket of, he is a Democrat. Mm -hmm. And if the president
1: of the United States of America can, is eligible to to run for re-election and decides to do so, that's your nominee baby that's how it works i'm i know that they meant that might not sound democratic but that is the game
0: in fact it does not sound democratic (laughs) (laughs) meanwhile the ladies of the view had this message for their viewers when it came to biden's sour numbers well you know how i feel about polls because i just feel like you know you're polling Four thousand people in a place, and you can't tell me that's half the nation. All you can tell me is that you know we polled four thousand people, and that's how they felt. Mm-hmm. So I, I always like to make sure that we're clear on polls because remember last time we checked poll, uh, they had Hillary Clinton winning. Mm-hmm. Does—I I love her to death. You know, a great part of my childhood, terrific actress, Star singer. Star of my favorite movie. So I, I'm not putting Whoopi down, but does she not know how polls work? Like, it, it's it's not—they didn't just magically find the 4,000 people who all don't want Biden anymore, right? It's a representative sample. Well,
1: here's what it is. Everybody likes a poll when it confirms their biases. Nobody likes a poll when it doesn't. And if it were some insurgent progressive running for office who, mm-hmm. you know, what's calling themselves a socialist or saying they wanted healthcare, she'd be finding polls here or there or otherwise to say why the uh, establishment candidate that she prefers mm-hmm. is actually a really good guy. So whoopee is going to whoopee. What is interesting is that they're even acknowledging at this point that there's a problem. And what you're seeing is a kind of cope from people who don't really have coping strategies of being in this position. Simone Sanders can say, this is just how it happens. The incumbent gets to run all she wants. But we are in some unprecedented waters. We have never had a president this old. We have never- Not even close. Not even close. And very rarely, only in the the post-2016 era, really, have we had candidates that have unfavorable numbers as bad as what Biden and Trump are showing us right now.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, she's right as a matter of procedure that it is very likely for Biden as the incumbent eligible to run again, de- deciding to run again, does have a lot of tools at his disposal to be the nominee. That doesn't mean there shouldn't be a process given, um, I mean, again, just given basic democratic principles and given how unpopular he is, how badly the poll numbers suggest, Maybe, you know, let voters decide. Maybe they find someone else um, they like, but it's clear the DNC doesn't want to even go through this. They consider it a charade. They could, they they don't want to give anyone else even a fighting chance against Joe Biden. Okay, we'll see how that works out for you. Let voters decide is exactly where we should
1: be, what everyone should mm-hmm. be thinking about. Regardless of what you think Joe Biden's agenda should be, if you have that kind of Ruth Bader Ginsburg-esque It's his turn. Let him do him. Don't make him drop out kind of a sentiment. That's fine. The question isn't whether or not Biden has the right to run. The question is whether the Democratic Party has the right to preemptively shut down a primary, reorder the primary states in a way that is advantageous or at least perceived to be advantageous to Joe Biden. We'll see if that's even true, given some of the poll numbers coming out of South Carolina and and the way that he is drowning public opinion-wise with black voters that took him across the aisle there. But yeah. that, that is the real indictment here. It's not, frankly, of Joe Biden, who, through some mixture of, like, you know, being the incumbent and having the right and, you know, being a cantankerous old guy who can do what he wants to do. The question is whether the Democratic Party has failed the public and failed its constituents by not allowing there to be a primary so that there is a alternative at least an alternative that has been able to make the case to the public in case Mm -hmm. Biden isn't even able to run.
0: We are in uncharted waters. It's not just Biden, you know, the age of our members of Congress, our, our political leaders. It's showing. It's embarrassing. It's concerning. It concerns people of of who are even in that political party. You know, Mitch McConnell's had his um, his his like moments where he just kind of he stops responding in at press conferences, and there's that is concerning to Republicans. Um, Senator Rand Paul from from, he's from the same state. They get along great. He said it's He said it's problem. He said it's not easily explained by what they put forth as the medical reason. Um, Obviously, we went through what we went through with Diane Feinstein and to some extent John Fetterman. Political figures are more in the public eye than ever. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a PR job. It's a job to be on camera, to be to be fundraising and and traveling around and and, and you know raising money for other candidates. Mm-hmm. You, you're in the limelight constantly, and we like we see you. We yeah. see what kind of shape you're in, and it's just it, it's. It's not, it's too much for a lot of a lot of Americans. It's not even ideological. It's just like, you're not up for it. I can see that you're not up for it. Yeah. I can see the decline. Well, according to the former
1: executive, a director of the New York State Democratic Party, Vice President Harris is the party's secret weapon because she's just so gosh darn popular. Uh,
4: uh, there is one secret weapon, not so secret, that they have at their disposal. That's Kamala Harris. On all of these issues, whether it's reproductive rights, uh, affirmative action, voter suppression, just democracy broadly, for all of the reasons that you talked about at the top, in terms of uh, uh, in terms of desegregation and the challenges to that. Here is an individual with the level, the kind of intersectionality that is the future of the American voter and the Democratic Party, not the past. So why not put, put her out there to be able to speak to the to both the policy and the emotional content and urgency? of these issues. That's what the Democrats need to do going forward. What's it going to take, in your opinion, for that theory to be tested, for the Democratic yeah. Party to actually say, this is our person, this is who we want to put our effort and our muscle behind and try to move forward there? They've already done it. In that Joe Biden uh, uh, announcement, the campaign an- uh, announcement, she was featured a lot more heavenly than one would, th- one would think. So the idea behind that, in my view, is that We're gonna make her more of the face of the Democratic Party in this real life. If you look-
1: Wowza. Okay, so first of all, listen to the policy uh, agenda points that he rattled off.
0: Those are not some popular things.
1: Affirmative action? Yeah. When's the last time you heard anybody bring up affirmative action? And I think what's going on there, is that that Biden has failed so much on so many of the mainstream agenda items that Black voters, like all voters, have always prioritized these economic issues. I just pulled up a poll from 2022 showing um, uh, what Black voters care about. We're talking about housing affordability. We're talking about the economy. We're talking about healthcare costs. We're talking about inflation. We're talking about abortion access. Now, He's going to get a lot of Biden's going to get a lot of juice out of the abortion squeeze. But on all so many of those other issues, that's exactly where he's dropped the ball. Economic issues, black voters have more student debt than any other group in America. You know, the inflation is not a selling point for Joe Biden at this juncture. Uh, the $2,000 checks, a lot of people remember, they got him under Trump, they didn't get as much money under Biden. The student debt moratorium, even if you think the Supreme Court is the responsible for him not being able to follow through with student debt cancellation, he made the choice to lift Donald Trump's moratorium, the pause that enabled so many people to get through this pandemic without having to deal with an extra 500. uh, $2,000 a month in payment. That's on Joe Biden. And the fact that they have to be bringing up affirmative action as the thing that's going to draw people to the polls and he's coming out of Kamala Harris And he was
0: bringing it up in a way that draws attention to the fact that she was chosen for affirmative action adjacent (laughs) reasons, which is not, which I don't think speaks well of her qualifications and her ability to resonate with um, voters at large. You know, we've talked uh, a lot about how she wasn't even particularly popular. She was going to not l- do true. well in California, or she was not particularly popular with um, black voters That's or women true. in particular there either. There are many
1: black candidates who are very qualified to do the job, are seeing Barbara Lee really distinguishing herself in this moment in this race for a Feinstein seat uh, by being the only candidate in that race who's willing to come out against additional funding to Ukraine—sorry, and uh, sorry, to Israel, rather—in calling for a ceasefire. Uh, that could have been a Kamala, she could have been in Kamala Harris instead of course if she were she wouldn't be able to take that position
0: Although we do have to give credit where credits due in that most recent poll that we discussed yesterday the abysmal results for Biden showing Biden losing um, losing badly in the five swing states uh, losing if, if relative to a generic Democrat an unnamed Democrat too bad you have to put a name on the ballot for people to vote for him mm-hmm. but also behind Kamala Harris yeah. who up until now Joe Biden the one thing you could say for Form is you can't step aside. He can't step aside. His vice president is more unpopular than he is. Um, that this poll shows that's no longer true. And in fact, if Joe Biden could win people who'd rather have Kamala Harris, he would be ahead in those in that polling. So that is. I don't know. I think that's reflective of how far Biden has fallen, yeah, an rather than of anything Biden else. Not a compliment to Harris, um, but for sure, it's a problem either way. Lots of problems. Well, we are one year out from the big day. (laughs) We will be counting down as we proceed. We're so excited, hope you are. More Rising right after this. President Biden announced a $320 million weapons transfer to the IDF yesterday in support of Israel's siege of the Gaza Strip. This came on the same day that the Secretary General of the United Nations, Antonio Gutierrez, pleaded for a ceasefire in the region, calling Gaza a graveyard for children. This week... Gaza
2: is becoming a graveyard for children. Hundreds of girls and boys are reportedly being killed or injured every day. And the unfolding catastrophe makes the need for a humanitarian ceasefire more urgent with every passing hour. The parties to the conflict and indeed the international community face an immediate and fundamental responsibility to stop the inhuman collective suffering and dramatically expand humanitarian aid to Gaza.
1: This week, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu announced Israel will take overall security responsibility in Gaza indefinitely, a month into its war against Hamas. According to the Associated Press, this is the clearest indication yet that Israel plans to maintain control over Gaza following the seizure of Israeli hostages by Hamas after the October 7th attacks. Now, when it comes to protecting civilians in the Gaza Strip, Senator Lindsey Graham had a message for Americans. Don't worry
5: about it. Well, I think Israel is committed to following the law of armed conflict. One thing I want to say for sure is Israel is not engaged in genocide. And another thing we need to deal with is the whitewashing of the status of people in Gaza. Uh, I'm sure there are plenty of people who would love to be free from uh, Hamas, but the most radicalized people on the planet live in the Gaza Strip. They've been taught since birth uh, to kill and hate the Jews. How do you teach math in Gaza? If you had 10 Jews and you kill six, how many would be left? That's been in their school system. So I'm all for providing humanitarian aid in a fashion that doesn't help Hamas. I'm all for Israel having the time and space to destroy Hamas. I'm all for a new governing regime over the Palestinian people when this is over. And I'm all for Israel and Saudi Arabia reconciling.
1: In response to Graham's statement on CNN, The Grey Zones' Aaron Maté tweeted, There is no one more radicalized than US neocons content to openly demand genocide. Yeah, so uh, first of all, I noticed that Lindsey Graham said Israel is following the laws of armed conflict. No pushback. It very clearly is not. I don't know how many humanitarian organizations, including the United Nations, have to say that what Israel is doing with respect to cutting off power and food and water amounts to collective punishment of a population of 2.3 million people, half of whom are children, the dropping of white phosphorus the numerous hospitals that have been bombed, the numerous U.N. uh, humanitarian facilities and U.N. schools and and humanitarian aid members who have been killed, the number of journalists that have been killed, which is over a dozen now, um, the choice to repeatedly bomb a, a, a refugee camp, the largest refugee camp in Gaza. I mean, quite plainly, Israel is violating the laws of war, and repeatedly, the reason it's we're being told it's allowed to do so basically, it, it can follow different rules than the rest of the world, it's because the Gazans, or at least Hamas, are such bad people that we're supposed to accept the fact that over 3,000 children and 10,000 people total have been killed.
0: No, no, the, the Gazans are not such bad people, Hamas is. Um, I mean, we had a human- So they're
1: not bad people, but, but a- they deserve to be killed because We
0: had a human rights expert on the show last week and what she and other human rights experts have said is that it's a matter of proportionality, and maybe this is not proportionate, and, and thus should be condemned, but they still need to investigate it. It does not violate international law, unfortunately, sadly, for um, civilians to be killed in the process of waging war against a group that attacked you, or to use any of the tactics you described.
1: It it does. I I quite literally... It 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 doesn't, though. I quite literally explained war crimes. Collective punishment is a war crime. They're not engaged
0: in collective punishment. They are trying to kill Hamas.
1: You saying it's not collective punishment, as compelling as that might be in certain circles, is not a thing. Collective punishment is defined as taking out, uh, punishing an entire population of innocents to punish a small minority of people within there. Hamas is not, you're not targeting Hamas. They are literally targeting Hamas, targeting
0: Hamas. You are
1: quite literally not targeting Hamas, Robbie. and words have meaning. When you cut off the food, water, electricity, and medical supplies to a population of 2.3 million people, and frankly, at this point, I think you can rightly describe it as indiscriminate bombing, now that over 40 percent... It is not
0: indiscriminate bombing. It is bombing of Hamas targets. Oh. Again, you, okay, you don't so, have to... So,
1: Robbie, it's not indiscriminate. So, they're intentionally bombing hospitals, refugee centers, and the like. I
0: don't They're bombing places where Hamas is embedded.
1: Okay. So, they've intentionally bombed hospitals, refugee centers, schools the like.
0: Yes. You said indiscriminate. Oh, that they're bombing at random. E-
1: either way, guess what? It's a war
0: crime. Okay. Targeting hospitals and refugee centers. No, either war way crime it's not a war crime. Randomly. That's not true. It is it is it is not disallowed. That doesn't mean it's I I'm endorsing it or I'm saying it's good or they should continue doing it. But you're you're obsessed with these terms. They are conducting a war against Hamas and schools and hospitals and all the like. If Hamas is gathered there, are legitimate military targets? I'm reading a quote um, from the International
1: Committee of the Red Cross. According to international humanitarian law, health establishments and units, including hospitals, should not be attacked. This protection extends to the wounded sick, as well as to medical staff and means of transport. They
0: should not be attacked.
1: Just earlier this week, 100 Israeli physicians signed a letter saying that it was, in fact, Israel's duty to target and kill hospitals, because it was the wasp's nest
0: that needed to be taken out. Again, they are bombing targets where they have intelligence that they believe Hamas is there. That is That does not mean I think they should continue doing this or that the civilian casualties are acceptable to me. Israel is clearly but in is, violation of- no, 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 They're not doing what you're claiming they're doing. Right. So Israel
1: is clearly in violation of international law. I
0: utterly dispute that.
1: And uh, Lindsey Graham is allowed to go on TV And say exactly the opposite without any pushback. Then the next part, I think, that was really um, shocking to people, is this rhetoric that we've been hearing a lot that Hamas thinks it's okay to kill people. It's okay to kill civilians. Right. Hamas has
0: obviously violated international law.
1: Israel, we're, we're told, does not think it's okay to kill people. It's not. It's not okay to do this when we are seeing with our very eyes Israel doing exactly that, killing. Thousands upon thousands of civilians with impunity because the international community, the the America, is shielding it with this. What did what did Vivek Ramaswamy call it when we talked to him last week? Um, a, A political. Uh, Iron Dome over the country shielding it from any kind of accountability from the international community c- Community that's supposed to be tasked with making sure that wars are fought fairly Well,
0: I mean we're not shielding it from criticism from the international community It's getting criticism from the international community. It's getting criticism from UN and I think that's I, all fine I think I, I just said
1: shielding it from accountability not
0: criticism Well, I would be happy to pay the ultimate accountability Which would be for them to pay for this effort themselves, and I don't like the idea of of a permanent ground occupation of the Gaza Strip, um, that's going to be costly. That's going to be—they're going to be coming to America for more help and support with that. And then we're right back in the same place we were with Iraq or any of other, our other boondoggles in the last 20 years. So make a mistake, I don't want to be part of it. I don't want to co-sign or endorse or be responsible for what's happening. Um, but I—and but but no buts about that, but I cannot, um, <laughs> I cannot assert that— Uh, That taking out that killing Members of the terrorist group that just attacked you is impermissible. It is clearly permissible
1: Right the the thing that's impermissible is killing 10,000 civilians almost half of whom are children and saying well, we can do it all We can do anything because we're saying that we killed a terrorist group. At what point does there need need to be any accountability or sense of proportionality 1400 people were horrifically killed on October 7th I saw an analogy that was made, I think, by Bill Maher on his show. I don't know, actually, if we have that as a part of this segment.
0: I think we're going to talk about him in a bit.
1: OK. Um,
0: but I, don't, I think we're going to talk about something else that happened on the show. So uh, talk about the Israel part.
1: Uh, one of his guests was saying, actually making an, an argument in favor of um, restraint against uh, the people of Gaza, was saying, you know, it's really hard to say to someone to, to exercise restraint in this situation. It's like telling a father whose daughter has just been raped, don't go and kill the guy. But you got to tell him, don't kill the guy, because you're going to end up in jail too and not be able to take care of your family. So we got to exercise restraint. I would say that analogy is a little flawed. I think it's more like the father does kill the daughter's rapist and then kills that man's entire family, all of their family all of their co-workers, all of their friends, and anyone who ever knew. And then for us to be sitting here equivocating about, "Mm, is it right to tell this murderous person on a rampage, no matter how slighted they were in the instance, that they don't get to kill the entire world because they have been hurt and they have been wronged? They don't get to take out revenge on innocents because they have been hurt and they have been wronged? I think that's the appropriate analogy.
0: I mean there are a lot of ways we could complicate that analogy it's a gang of rapists engaged in continuous rape of their of their innocent neighbors and it's not random retaliatory vigilante style it's a state and its representatives um, hunting down the gang of rapists who will continue that behavior the second they are left alone to do it mm-hmm. as part of their philosophy and ideology. And you could
1: further complicate it by saying it wasn't a rapist at all. Let's just call it a murder and say that the murderer had been kept captive for 75 years uh, with non potable water, no job opportunities, and no ability to leave. We're literally a captive who broke out of their cell and killed that man's daughter in the first place. But instead of complicating these analogies further, Let's look at this jaw-dropping quote from a recent NBC News article that reveals that United States government officials could be making statements of concern regarding Palestinian civilians and the United States' efforts to provide them humanitarian relief, just to point them um, uh, to—just to point to them later on, rather, in case things go wrong. A senior United States official reportedly said, if this goes really bad, we want to be able to point to our past statements, suggesting that calls for humanitarian relief aren't really rooted in principle. According to NBC administration, officials are worried that President Joe Biden's swift support for Israel following the outbreak of its war on Hamas could in fact backfire.
0: Meanwhile, Israeli government spokesperson Elon Levy wrote on X, quote, Israel has done more than any army in history to get the other side's civilians to safety. Fact check me on that. But Hamas has a well-documented strategy of recklessly endangering civilians by embedding itself among them your right to be outraged, direct that outrage at Hamas," end quote. That's a, that's a
1: bold-faced lie, so it's, it's hard to know what to do with a lie like that. I mean, the war between Russia and Ukraine has been going on for two years, and the mainstream media figures have been apoplectic about the civilian casualties and the loss of life, not wrongly so. But within in almost two years of fighting, Russia couldn't manage to do even a fraction of the damage that Israel has inflicted on the people of Gaza in just 30-odd days. So how you can look at that kind of very clear and recent counterexample and then turn to the public and lie and say, Israel is doing all that it can, as it continues to bombard this population of half children with no sign, no plan, no articulation of strategy as to how they're actually rooting out Gaza, uh, rooting out Hamas. Notably, they said that they couldn't anticipate, they didn't know that the attacks of October 7th were happening because Hamas was underground in tunnels. So there's an acknowledgment that Hamas is largely safe from these attacks because they're underground in tunnels, and yet there is this choice to raise Gaza, that was the explicit stated plan of Israeli government officials in the immediate aftermath of October 7th to raise Gaza. It seems very clear that the real plan here is to make it an in- inhospitable place to live so that the people of Gaza can no longer live there, and so they'll be pu- pu- pushed out into a smaller and smaller pieces of land. The northern half of Gaza is now basically inhospitable. And, um, these refugees that are there from the Nakba in 1948, the catastrophe, were there, 700,000 of them were driven off their land, and what was historic Palestine will be further pushed farther and farther away from their homeland.
0: Look, I am not satisfied by what Israel says, that it's working hard enough to limit civilian casualties. I've seen the blown-apart buildings. I've seen the victims. Um, Justin Amash's family, you know, church, they didn't try to hit the church. They were trying to hit the thing next to the church. Also hit the church and killed a lot of people. And I'm not, so I am not, we should not accept the Israeli government or any governments just at face value that they're doing everything they can. Sorry. So I am with you on that. I do not accept that that this is a genocide on all of Palestine. This is clearly defined military objectives to kill a terrorist organization that attacked them, which will be the behavior of every competent state on earth would respond this way. And Hamas is embedded amongst a densely populated civilian centers with lots of children, and that is why they are dying. That doesn't mean it is acceptable, or we should say that it it can continue at this rate. Um, but I, I, I don't agree that the plot is to destroy Gaza. The plot is to kill Hamas, and that is an entirely justified thing to do in the wake of their actions. Their actions brought this on their own people, on the Gaza Strip, on Palestinian children. They did this, and now these are the consequences.
1: Too bad. All right. Let us know what you think. Are you allowed to shoot the hostage uh, in these kinds of international uh, skirmishes and disagreements. Let us know what you think in the comments. Stick around. We'll have more rising for you after this. More social media censorship. YouTube and Facebook have allegedly taken action against conservative podcast host Stephen Crowder, who has obtained and published some pages from the Nashville Covenant School Shooters Manifesto. He wrote on X that viewers could instead tune into Rumble, rather, to learn more about the manifesto. Nashville's mayor has confirmed that a manifesto leaked online was written by Covenant school shooter Audrey Hale, who was responsible for killing six people this past spring. The mayor says the manifesto gives some insight into the gunman's motive for the
0: shooting. Steven Crowder announced the leak on YouTube yesterday, saying he will be reading the manifesto on his show. He also posted screenshots of the manifesto on social media. The leak uh, reads Nashville school covenant shooter Audrey Hill's death day manifesto targeted crackers with white privileges from the manifesto. The manifesto also reportedly includes the following kill those kids, those crackers going to private fancy schools with fancy khakis and backpacks and their daddy's Mustang convertibles. I hope I have a high death count. I'm ready, I hope my victims aren't ready to die. Now this delay in Hale's manifesto's release has actually been a point of contention for conservatives. Um, so now we have Stephen Crowder got um, not the whole manifesto but essentially pictures of a couple pages of it. Um, and then the mayor of Nashville has confirmed that those are legitimate, that is the shooter's manifesto am There's a couple things we can talk about here. Fra- I don't understand what social media companies are doing. Um, look, this information is going to be out there. It, it has been confirmed as accurate. Are we like doing a Hunter Biden laptop all over again? We're like, well, we can't confirm the authenticity of hacked materials. Blah blah blah. Um, it seems very likely that they are in fact legitimate. And you sh- and and a you know a, a commentator well, been confirmed is as legitimate. right. Right. I guess technically the mayor could be wrong, but sure. A, a commentator is. Showing, you know, a, a there's no there's no um, license to be a journalist. You can think whatever you want about Stephen Crowder. He's a commentator who obtained information, who's sharing it with the public. Um, I think it is of relevance to the public. Um, uh, if, if the public wants to understand or think they can divine some kind of better understanding of the shooting from what is in the manifesto, they are entitled to to read it. Um, I kind of look down upon that project, and I I think. Crazy people are doing crazy things, and that's regrettable. But it is the case that we've dug into it a, a lot of times in the past, and people want to score political points based on the ideology of that, all, all sort of things. So um, we have a norm and a standard of wanting to understand more about a shooter's motivations, and here we are with some information. What is YouTube doing? What is Facebook doing? They, they warned, essentially, Crowder that if you persist in posting this, something could happen to, with your account.
1: Yeah. I mean, certainly there are journalists who make the decision all the time not to publish uh, manifestos and the like from uh, mass shooters because there is this uh, mimicry effect that they don't want to be responsible for. Um, I respect that decision uh, from people who make that decision. Of course, that's different from forcing people into that decision by pulling their shows off the internet and the like. So that seems... Ill-advised, Obviously, in this information age, anybody who wants to see this manifesto can. Um, so I, I don't agree with that decision from Facebook uh, and YouTube. Getting into the uh, manifesto itself, uh, you're right that many people, many conservatives in particular, were really eager to see this manifesto. They felt it was being hidden because its ideological priors might look bad for the left. Do you you feel like that's the case, reading these few pages that we have so far anyway?
0: I I mean, I think it, no. I think it shows a very disturbed individual um, lashing out at, um, I mean, to the extent there's a political valence to what the shooter wrote. It's against well-to-do people. There's maybe a uh, there's one line about like yellow ha- mop haired people. I, I, mm-hmm. you can I, you can read into it a, a dislike and crackers obviously yeah. is a slur against white people. And, the shooter and is white and also
1: says uh, the f word. Prejudice right, uh,
0: to, to gays, to yes. And Despite being a trans nine, person yeah, themselves. Exactly. So, you know what I take away from this is that the prod the project of trying to. Um, to assume or project a coherent ideology onto a mass shooter is almost definitionally, in my view, very flawed. It's something we do—it's something people on both sides of the political spectrum do. Um, I remember when, uh, when the, the guy who shot um, Gabby Giffords in Arizona, um, the, the Tucson shooter, there was a whole media cycle about basically trying to— blame Sarah Palin for it or blame kind of conservative speech because there had been a target over that district on like a, districts we want to take back kind of The heated rhetoric on the right was responsible for it, though there was no evidence he had seen that map, and, and that his ideas were not, they were all over the place. They were very fringe and lunatic and not, he had, was troubled about how language was being manipulated by the, you know, the dark forces. So the long way of saying we're looking for coherence where we're not likely to find it because people who do these kinds of things are definitionally unstable.
1: I, I think that's true in part. I remember reading um, the Elliot Rogers manifesto years ago. It was, I guess, kind of early on the upswing of these kinds of mass shooting events. And it was, it was the moment that I think put the terminology incel on the map. Mm-hmm. He wrote a lot about feeling yeah. M- diminished as a mixed race person. He was half Asian and half white. He felt as his, his white family, his white father had abandoned and ignored their family. He felt undesirable in a romantic context. He was resentful of his, I think, either black or Latino uh, college roommates who he felt like were more successful with women. He felt like he was more entitled to women uh, because of being whiter than they were, but living in this liminal state as a half Asian person. The psychological portrait of it was, I, I will confess, in- interesting. Um, and there was—because and, and there was a—and that obviously doesn't justify murdering people, but there was a coherence to what the pain that he was feeling or whatever psychological drama that he was going through. And similarly, I do think perhaps people expected this manifesto to say, I'm trans and I hate the world so much that so I'm going to kill people because I'm trans. And so far—there's only three pages—but the, the core of the complaint seems to be about her own feelings of economic marginalization. Um, those crackers go into fancy private schools, fancy khaki sports backpacks with their daddies Mustangs and convertibles, F-U little S-H-I-T's. You know, I, I, I that I, I do wonder if so many of these people end up being disaffected by one way or another, combined with their obvious mental health issues, leads you to be not just a normal person who's mentally unwell, who never kills anybody, never hurts anybody. Right. but. A mass shooter, and, and oftentimes in jail or dead at the end of it, and I and I do I do wonder about that. Given that we do seem to have more of these events in the United States of America, to the extent that there is this cultural component, what there is to be done about it. It just
0: usually I think this pursuit often causes us to look for um, broader uh, uh, reasons in society that this kind of thing happens. When it's there, thankfully, these things are very rare, and it and it's it's not then we get this false confidence that, well, we, if only we could prevent, well, remember the, um, the um, uh, Columbine shooting prompted all of these narratives that turned out basically to be wrong about how they, well, there was, that they'd been bullied so hard. You know, the epidemic of bullying in school, in schools is, is what caused, you know, they, they, they snapped. They were just pushed too hard. Then subsequent reporting showed that they were mean, nasty kids themselves. They bullied plenty of people. They were not like uniquely the most picked upon kids or something. Um,
1: well, it's a confluence of things, right? It can be it can be that you are unhappy and you're, that you're bullied. That you're and, but obviously most bullied people don't shoot people your brain didn't develop up.
0: correctly. And
1: it, and it could also be that. I mean, I, I had this experience on my Colin show one day where we were talking about one of these mass shootings. And I had two guests call in in the same episode who had said that when they were in high school, they came very close to being mass shooters themselves. It was a very emotional revelation that was happening in this very intimate space. And one of them in particular was really emphasizing how he felt kind of romantically non-viable. And he was bi and quite short and um, Latino in a predominantly white environment, all of these things that he felt in his head. It's not saying that all of it was real, Mm -hmm. but that he subjectively felt so um, invisible and irrelevant that he wanted to take that out on other people. And they, these both of both these gentlemen talked about how close—how much they thought about it, how close they came, like, this is the access I had to a gun, X, Y, and Z, and what it was that eventually caused them to turn around. And however close they actually were, in effect, to doing something like that, it did speak to me about how I think these sorts of sentiments might be more widespread. Teenagers are so— Hormonal and depressed, yeah. and messed up. I mean, being and, a teenager is very hard, and compounded by any number of other social factors. I mean, I guess it is. You know, there's nothing you can do. People, you know. some people are just crazy, and that that's that's is, is going to be what it is. But it does make me want to think more about how to be more supportive as communities, generally speaking, for all kinds of reasons, not just to um, dissuade uh, I mean, We have,
0: You know, we talk a lot, obviously, about what's wrong in society and various places. I, Schools have become, for boys at least, um, less violent environments. If you think about all the, like, there's a lower tolerance for just boys beating the crap out of each other in schools, at recess, sports events, than there was in prior times, which should translate to a massive improvement in their their young lives. Um, obviously, we talk a lot about the depressive effects that girls are experiencing. Maybe, maybe their experience hasn't improved so much. There are some arguments that people like Jonathan Haidt have come up with that, that social media is, you know, it's it, the rise of it has been bad for girls, but actually not bad for boys because the way they engage with social media is mostly like video games, which can be community building and can actually allow people who don't have a lot of friends to make friend networks and engage mm. in socialization that's healthy. Because um, violent video games were also blamed for mm-hmm. Columbine. It turns out violent video games are a way to, um, to vent, mm-hmm. <laughs> frankly, if you're inclined toward violence without perpetrating real-world world harms. Um, or at least that one came up on the, um, uh, what the Adam Lanza, the uh, Newtown, I don't know how much it was talked about in Columbine, but in the wake of Newtown it was definitely talked about because he had played Call of Duty or something like that. Um, anyway, we go looking for meaning. And uh, sometimes with, when you're staring in the face of just psychotically evil people, I don't know how much we can learn, and...
1: I think the scary thing, and what's scary to me is the idea that some of them might not be psychotically evil, that there but for the grace of God goes any number of people that we might have known. Um, and that's, I think, what's a little chilly for me about reading these sorts of things, but let us know what you think about this manifesto. You might not be able to find it on YouTube, but it's out there on the internet. And do stick around. We have more Rising for you right after this.
0: Well, 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 we have a bombshell new report to get to. According to Representative Jim Jordan, hundreds of secret documents show that the departments of Homeland Security, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA, the State Department, Stanford University, and others were working all in tandem to censor American speech before the 2020 election. This includes true information, jokes, and also opinions. All of this according to documents that were released by the House Judiciary Committee on the weaponization of the federal government.
1: Jordan writes that the federal government, disinformation experts at colleges, big tech, and others worked together through the Election Integrity Partnership to monitor and censor American speech. And according to one EIP member, the EIP was created at the request of CISA and that Alex Stamos, director of the Stanford Internet Observatory and allegedly part of EIP, said they were working on some election monitoring ideas with CISA.
0: Well, how did this all go down? EIP stakeholders would allegedly submit misinformation reports and then would analyze the reports and find similar content across the platforms and then submit reports to the big tech companies, often with a recommendation on how specifically to censor that information. Again, this is all according to reporting from the House Judiciary Committee. Now, in a statement to Fox News Digital, CISA Executive Director Brandon Wales said the agency does not and has never censored speech or facilitated censorship. So obviously, we already know a lot of the pieces here, mm. but um, what this is showing specifically is that CISA, which is a government agency—remember, um, there was an attempt to gotcha over—gotcha uh, Matt Taibbi about saying the CIS instead of CISA in one place—CISA is a government agency. They were working with the Election Integrity Project at Stanford, where we, they would flag misinformation—flag things they thought were misinformation, and then the—the Stanford researchers would look for more examples of that and then would submit to um, to the social media companies and say you should take this down, take this down but it, it, but this was specifically requests coming from the government agency. the government agency would have what action they wanted in mind when they gave it to the election integrity project. Um, so again, this shows that, Government forces and some nonprofits and others were very much entangled in an effort to take down some of the, I'm sure some of the content they flagged. There's examples of, of, uh, of content they flagged that was genuinely wrong. And there are some laws around, we, we got into this a little bit with Schellenberger yesterday, laws around what you're allowed to say about, the. you know, trying to, uh, about the election and suppressing the vote. But some of these are clearly jokes. Uh, there was one co- piece of content was a, was a Mike Huckabee, either a tweet or a statement on Facebook or something where he just says, I just voted and I got home and all my dead relatives are, I'm now voting for them too, huh? We're all voting for Trump. Like it's obviously not serious. And that got flagged as something that should be taken action of by a government agency. La- that's this complaint laundered through a nonprofit to social media.
1: Is there any evidence that uh, any of the social media companies acted on what seemed to be clear jokes and the like, as opposed to just acting on the unpermissible speech, uh, the election fraud type things and the like?
0: Oh yes, they, yes, we have examples, and they were in some of the Twitter files of them taking, of them moderating um, posts of that nature, or like, hey, hey, Democrats or hey, Republicans, whoever it was, remember to vote on Wednesday, that kind of thing, and those getting deleted. Um, and also, we have plenty of evidence that, again, that the sometimes the social media companies were having internal deliberations where they did not want to comply, and they thought these were not um, not fair assertions. That he was mischaracterizing uh, mischaracterizing things as misinformation. Um, we alluded to this a little bit yesterday, but this new Twitter files installment from um, Susan Schmidt, um, where, where she it's the same thing as the previous Russian bots list. Another example of of um, of a I can't remember which exact. I think this was DHS. It was DHS um, coming to Twitter and saying these are Russian bots, and Twitter saying the exact quote was great. Is um, Yolroth talking to other people at Twitter saying there's nothing to see here? Inactive accounts may be spam, but nothing insidious. Um, I-, I would suspend some of these, but I actually don't want to throw fire on their report by making them think they're making anyone think they're correct. <laughs> so, so there was there was internal pushback. But they were just facing this massive—and uh, then in that case, Senator Mark Warner got in their face about how they weren't taking misinformation seriously enough. So, um, you know, it, it shows why we're, why this the Supreme Court case will matter, um, having to do with uh, Missouri v. Biden, how much— contact with the, between the social media companies and the government is appropriate because there was this vast concerted effort to launder the government's complaints about social media through nonprofits to the moderators.
1: What should the rule be? Is the argument that um, government agencies should never flag anything at all?
0: Yeah, that's what we're gonna have to decide and ideally that would be something I guess like the Congress would would, uh, weigh in on this question rather than have the Supreme Court kind of frankly invent it out of thin air. Um, I I think it's appropriate for law enforcement agencies um, to have contact with social media for um, content, for sexually exploitative content, child pornography, terrorism, maybe organized crime. What's terrorism? Because right right now we have
1: Congress saying, that uh, various pro-Palestinian student groups are supporting terrorism, that they aren't allowed to fundraise for Palestine because that's supporting terrorism, that supporting BDS is terrorism.
0: Yeah, that's the danger. Obviously, I don't think those things, that's not what I'm talking about, and they should have no contact with the platforms on those issues. And frankly, um, I'd rather go too far the other way and just say they can't even talk to the platforms about terrorism.
1: Yeah, I'd, I'd be inclined to agree, but I suspect given the appetite um, that we're seeing in Congress for characterizing things as terrorism. We did a segment earlier today uh, wherein Tulsi Gabbard, who has historically been framed as an anti-war advocate, seems to be very much invested in getting involved in the Middle East because she thinks it's important to root out terrorism and the like. I mean, given right. given how much incentive there is to use terrorism as a fig leaf to encroach on people's civil liberties, as we saw in the wake of 9-11. For sure. And as we're seeing here, you know, no, I think that most Congress members aren't going to be willing to say, well, we're going to let terrorism go unchecked.
0: No, I agree with you. I, I'm not disagreeing at all. We can just call it organized violence or something of that. Oof, but-
1: yeah, there's going to be some, and I don't know that I have a lot of confidence in the Supreme Court either, but assessing what really is an imminent threat yeah. or threat at all, frankly, is going to be a tall order in these times.
0: I mean, Congress has already obligated, I mean, this is what's so so funny about this, they've they have forced. Uh, there's law. There are laws requiring social media companies to report, um, at least on the on the sexual exploitation part, um, to to report this information to law enforcement to do something about it. They have to take it down. Um, so they ha- they have obviously have to have some contact with government because they're being they ordered by law to um, to take down some of this content. It's not totally unrestricted. It's not that they can absolutely do whatever they want in all circumstances. Um, and I, I think. You know, most people probably think it's okay for if there's, you know, if there was actually um, an ISIS terror plot being, like, discussed in a Facebook group or something for Facebook to flag that for DHS and take it down. Probably we'd be okay with that. But I absolutely see your point that—I mean, the way the political figures talk and the way that the bureaucratic state has framed terrorism as just being, right, extremist speech— it from yes from or what they're describing as extremist speech from left pro Palestinian sympathetic people in this moment for sure what they've described as you know right extremist speech in like a pro Trump or January 6th kind of sense um, really the word terrorism has provided a lot of cover obviously for political actors to violate our civil liberties no no disagreement with you there
1: yeah all right well we'll keep following developments on this story stick with us we're rising right after this. A humanitarian crisis is emerging out of Pakistan after the government ordered the forced expulsion of some 1.7 million Afghan refugees living in the country. And groups say that to avoid arrest, Afghan families are being forced to flee their homes without access to food, water, electricity, shelter, or plumbing. Joining us now to break down what exactly is happening in Pakistan is Adam Weinstein, Deputy Director of the Middle East Program at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Welcome to the show, Adam.
2: Hey, thanks for having me.
1: So I think many people are coming relatively fresh to this crisis. Can you start by explaining why it is that there are so many Afghan refugees living in Pakistan to begin with?
2: Uh, well, Pakistan has hosted millions of Afghan refugees over the last uh, 40 years or so, uh, even longer we could say, but, but especially over the last 40 years. Uh, and many of them came uh, during the anti-Soviet jihad. Uh, that, that uh, occurred in the, the 80s, um, and then the civil war that followed, and then the uh, war on terror uh, that followed that. So uh, we, we've seen the steady uh, influx of Afghan refugees over the years who are fleeing conflict. And then another driver is that the Durand uh, line, which divides Afghanistan and Pakistan, uh, many Pashtun communities have relatives on both sides both sides of that border. so you have uh, people with family who are who are Pakistani nationals or Afghan nationals. So families are quite literally divided by the border and then you also have conflict that has driven uh, refugees into to Pakistan and then also to some extent migrants who are just seeking work.
1: So why now is Pakistan moving to expel these almost uh, over over a million almost two million refugees?
2: Uh, well, Pakistan has sought to expel these the refugees for many years. In fact, it was one of the demands they used to bring to the table uh, with the United States in exchange for helping with uh, talks uh, with the Taliban. So it's not new. Some of uh, the Afghan refugees in Pakistan are registered by the, under the uh, UNHCR. And then some of them are undocumented, around 1.7 million are undocumented, and those are the refugees that Pakistan is looking to expel, even though some of them were even born in Pakistan. Uh, and the reason there's such a drive to do it now is, is frankly, I think the Pakistani skate, uh, state is uh, scapegoating um, the Afghan refugees to some degree, and they're blaming them. Uh, for a couple things. There's the TTP violence, which is the TTP is sometimes interchangeably called the Pakistani Taliban. And so some of that violence has been blamed on Afghan refugees, although I'd argue it's more homegrown. Uh, a second reason is that they're trying to put pressure on the Afghan Taliban to rein in the TTP because the Afghan Taliban and the TTP have a close relationship. And the Pakistani state thinks if it expels all these refugees and the remittances that go back to Afghanistan stop, It will put pressure on the Afghan Taliban to rein in the TTP through embarrassing them and through putting an end to the remittances. And a third reason is that there's a widely held belief among Pakistanis, among the general public and among the Pakistani government, that Afghans have been hoarding U.S. dollars and sending those U.S. dollars back to Afghanistan. And that is messing with the exchange rate. There's some truth to that. A lot of U.S. dollars have flown to Afghanistan from Pakistan. But I don't think that's the primary driver of Pakistan's uh, economic problems. So in short, I'd say they're being scapegoated. Um, and in, a, in an attempt of having a rally around the flag effect, the Pakistani government thinks if it, if it expels these, these uh, refugees, uh, their problems will be solved.
0: We're not hearing a lot about this in Western media. There's not a lot of reporting going on about it. Um, Is that because we're so distracted by what's going on with Israel and Hamas right now?
2: I I think that's part of it. Uh, I think the Americans in general don't realize just how much other countries have to take on the burden uh, of refugees that, frankly, our wars create. Uh, Not only our wars, but to a large degree, our wars, our post-9-11 wars have created a refugee crisis. And so you see Afghan refugees going to Iran, you see them going to Pakistan, you see them go to Turkey. And these are countries that have absorbed millions of refugees. And as critical as I am of the Pakistani state's decision to expel these refugees, I'm even more critical of the fact that the United States can't even seem to process uh, former interpreters who worked alongside us troops. So it's very easy for us to say, how could Pakistan possibly do this? But we have all sorts of administrative and bureaucratic excuses for our inability to process far fewer Afghan refugees. Uh, but the reason I think it's out of sight and out of mind is because it's far away. Most Americans stopped paying attention to Afghanistan as soon as the last us soldier left. And also, as you alluded to, we have this, uh, Information uh, overload from from the conflict in Gaza.
1: Well, also, I mean, this is it's not new that we ignore events halfway around the world. I mean, a third of Pakistan was under water in the historic flooding last year. You know, almost 15, 14, 1,500 people died, and I saw nearly a peep of it really in the mainstream press. So, I do think that uh, what's going on in Gaza does have an effect here, but I am a little, I'm a little skeptical of the narratives that say that people who are invested in the humanitarian crisis in Gaza are kind of having selective interest here and, and uniquely, um, you know, indifferent to the to causes around the world. I really do think it's a little bit of a coverage issue, which is why I'm so um, grateful to have you with us today. You talked a little bit about um, the maybe hypocrisy of the United States having had a role, played a role in causing this conflict and also uh, expecting there to be an administrative Um, resources devoted to uh, resolving it in a way that we don't have in our own country, with a much smaller uh, volume of immigrants. What do you see as the most auspicious resolution of a conflict like this? It doesn't seem like there's a lot of interest within Pakistan, as you describe it, to suddenly have an an about-face and more sympathetic view toward uh, these uh, almost two million Afghans who've been living there.
2: Well, some members of Pakistani civil society have advocated for letting the the, the refugees stay, and and of course, many of the refugees are Pashtuns, and there's a large Pashtun population in Pakistan as well. In fact, the city in the world that has the, has the most Pashtuns is Karachi, Pakistan. It's not a city in Afghanistan, even though the more Pashtuns are in Afghanistan. But uh, uh, I, you know, I think the majority of Pakistanis have have to some degree bought the narrative that these refugees are causing an unfair burden on the Pakistani state and the Pakistani people. And of course, that narrative is quite easy to sell because the economy in Pakistan is so dismal right now and there's political unrest and there's rising terrorism. So I don't see an about face happening uh, anytime soon. Uh, The refugees I, I really feel sorry for in particular are those uh, Afghan refugees who were either born or grew up in Pakistan and the only country they ever knew was Pakistan—they've gone to school in Pakistan, especially young women who have gone to school in Pakistan—and now they're essentially returning to a country they've never known. And in the case of of the girls and women, they're not going to be able to go to school or go to work. So it's going to be a drastic change for them, and it's 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 a humanitarian disaster. There's no other way to put it. But you know, then again, I have to say that. The, the United States has really fallen short in that we haven't even uh, evacuated and, and, and granted visas to all of the individuals who directly helped us, let alone an influx of, uh, of millions of Afghans uh, who had no connection necessarily to our war. Uh, so we, we haven't even accomplished the minimum in this country. So that, of course, that doesn't excuse what the Pakistani state is doing, uh, but it does put it into perspective.
0: Hmm. Adam, thank you for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: John Fetterman was confronted by a ceasefire protester during a campaign appearance yesterday, a protester who wants a ceasefire. The joke is on that demonstrator because according to the senator himself, he can't even understand what they're saying.
4: That's
5: why I'm here. She's why all of you are here. But moments later, he's interrupted by a protester.
0: Four thousand plus dead children in Palestine. Nine thousand plus dead civilians. Get off the stage. Get off the stage. I
4: don't care. You stage.
5: Then Fetterman says this.
4: The joke. The joke is on you. I had a stroke. I can't fully understand what you're saying.
5: The man is eventually escorted out by police as he tells the senator to go home. uh,
1: Senator Cory Booker was also confronted by protesters demanding an end to the U.S. support of the IDF. He handled it a little bit differently. Let's take a look.
4: There are so many places in our country right now where people want to make sure that we have. This is what makes America great. The power to protest, Peace, fire, the power to
3: have now. free speech,
1: Peace, fire, the power now. of America. now! okay. So just to take the Fetterman one first, remember just recently he got into a little bit of hot water because someone on his behalf, who apparently was not on his staff, physically assaulted and pushed out of a restaurant uh, where. Uh, uh, Federer was having an event—someone who was asking him very calm, non-confrontational questions about the, America's unqualified support for Israel as it sieges Gaza. So now, like well, maybe not even a week later, he's being confronted by another uh, protester, and he says, joke's on you, I can't even understand you because of my stroke. How, what, do you, what do you make of that as a response to someone who was— uh, articulating their political grievances uh, to a political leader.
0: I don't know, maybe I'm supposed to just applaud a politician for finally being honest and saying (laughs) I'm mentally impaired and not qualified to respond to Well, that's not the same
1: thing. Not being able to hear doesn't mean they're not cognitively able to lead.
0: Okay, if you say so.
1: But it does—to me, the, the it does seem like I mean, I've weaponizing— I have had questions about Fetterman for a long time. <laughs> sure. I, I do think that, for me, the issue is weaponizing a legitimate disability to ignore yeah. grievances from your constituents. Because clearly, given the event there earlier week, it's not about him not being able to hear. It's about him not wanting to respond to those particular kinds of questions. I think we
0: have a right to demand of our political representatives that they are competent enough to— hear and understand our concerns, that they can mentally process those concerns. I don't have that belief for Vetterman and also many of our elderly um, people. Ravi,
1: competence and senility and being able to hear are very different things.
0: Okay, but having the ability to speak is important. he has no right to this job. He's one of—there's a hundred people in America who get this job, and he's—we've um, we've seen him asking questions sometimes of people—look, I don't mean to be mean. I hope he gets whatever recovery and, and, and help he needs. He's had depression because of this. It's a hard thing to go to—to uh, to go through. But um, he, he's not—are I, I, you, are you disagreeing with me? He's not—like, he's not capable of doing the job on no, a very my, basic level. my
1: critique is that his politics are terrible. Uh and that he well, is like weaponizing, either,
0: but I don't like any of their politics. <laughs> and, and that he's weaponizing
1: his illness yeah. uh, and his stroke to avoid confronting really serious accusations about how America is complicit and what have been described repeatedly by Amnesty International and other groups as war crimes. So like to me, like I and remember, I I, I would not run Fetterman, for many reasons now, including his politics on this issue, but he did have the stroke like two weeks before the election. It wasn't as though they could just swap him out. They were kind of locked in with Fetterman, and that's why he ended up being in this position. I think the question Fetterman's going to have to consider is whether or not anybody is going to have his back upon re-election, given that he's burned every bridge with the left
0: that I can imagine. Right. It's just very—I'm just saying it's very—for me, at least, voters can make up their mind it's an election. It's very disqualifying to me that you can't— that you're e- even acknowledging that you can't properly understand and respond to questions like this. Obviously, you're taking issue with the policy as well. And I'm taking issue with the policy. He, he supports—he he, he talks about the importance of funding Israel indefinitely, which is not a policy I support either. Um, Cory Booker then also heckled there—look, it, it is going to be a problem for Democrats to be heckled continuously at events by um, pro-Palestinian protesters. That's not going to be—that's going to make them very uncomfortable. That's going to make them mad, maybe, at—well, at the protesters, but maybe mad at Joe Biden for putting them in this position. Um, Corey, what, what is Cory Booker doing there? What is, he, what is he up to? What is
1: that? So, I saw just a few days ago uh, Alex Thompson over at uh, Axios. Tweeted that some Democrats seem to be quietly making moves to potentially succeed Biden. You have uh, Cory Booker going to South Carolina this month. Um, he wrote that they're, you know, uh, actually, I think a different author wrote this article that he's tweeting about, um, Sophia Kay, mm-hmm. but that they're going on resume building trips, foreign policy trips to show that they can be a commander in chief. It does seem to be like there's some chum in the water. The question is whether or not someone like Cory Booker has a real shot. Now, I will say, in Cory Booker's defense, back in 2020, the Democratic Party steamrolled all of the young talent in the party. I spent a lot of time obviously talking about how Bernie Sanders was treated, but we cannot ignore the fact that um, both Castro and Booker were— Not the worst off in terms of polling and candidates fresh out out the gate and they had a decent showing at an early debate but do you remember where they Went astray at least according to the Democratic Party. They had the audacity The Castro had the audacity to on stage Say Biden do you not understand me? I just said you just said that do you not remember what you just said and bring his cognition into question and then they went into the spin room and both he and Booker Doubled down on that and said, "Yes, I have concerns about his ability to lead." For that crime of saying the obvious, they were never on the debate stage again. Yeah, and so there's a part of me that is rooting, <laughs> rooting for them. I mean, in terms of just sheer appeal, Cory Booker and and Castro, and uh, compared to people like Kamala Harris infinitely more appeal but the problem is that people like cory booker have been i'm sorry apac toadies for a long time remember he's like pals with jared kushner trump threw a um fundraiser for cory booker back in like 2013 2014 and they're gonna have to answer for all of those entanglements it's a very different world than in the post-obama era when people were willing to forgive everything about you just because you were melanated
0: well Right. I mean, the, those things that will cause them absolutely will kill them in maybe the Democratic primary process could theoretically be strengths in a general election that you have uh, some friends or some respect from the right. Cory Booker is a, or at least at one point was, you know, working with Republicans or conservatives on education issues. Um, he seemed to be someone who was trying to find, you know, that. Bipartisan overlap, bipartisan overlap, sometimes being very bad. But on this issue, I was thankful to have his um, interest and support in it. Theoretically, that could be an asset um, if he were to be a general nominee against Trump or whoever else. Um, but in, I'm in, yes, in the current climate in the Democratic Party, he's going to have leftists screaming at him at all his events. So that's yeah, not fun. and
1: hopefully, um, hopefully, given how much crowing there has been about how there's this um, strong anti-war movement at the right. Hopefully there's some conservatives who are really genuinely principled in their anti-war bona fides that are going to join some of these leftists that have been doing the really hard work of carrying the anti-war movement for all of these years. So look forward to seeing how that all develops. Stick around for more Rising right after this. (music) President Biden's support among Arab Americans is on life support. A new poll out of Michigan finds that the commander-in-chief is actually trailing behind RFK Jr. when it comes to this polling block. Only 16 percent of Democratic respondents said they would vote for Biden if the election were held today. 82 percent of Michigan Democratic Arab and Muslim voters view Biden unfavorably, and 71 percent of Michigan Dems. Do support a ceasefire.
0: Hundreds of Muslim and Arab voters took to the state's capital this week to call for an end to U.S. military support to Israel. Per reporting from the ground, the indictment of Biden was totally clear. You can see in those images signs like Genocide Joe. Almost every speaker spoke about electorally punishing Democrats next year, which is a big deal. Um, this is a key constituency in that state. I'm from that state, obviously. Um, you know, it, and it, it's not. I don't think it's so much a matter of them suddenly becoming Republicans. But if they stay home or if they have interest in RFK Jr., um, Michigan is one of those swing states. Uh, This could be—this is—Trump won it in 2016. It was key to his surprise victory there. Um, This does sound like very bad news and should be affecting the calculus of what Biden's policy is um, with respect to the Israel-Hamas war. Um, again, you and I have different views on the conflict, but where we agree is there's no reason to keep um, tacitly endorsing what uh, what is going on there by sending weapons and pledging unlimited support.
1: Yeah, the reality is that Biden's margin of error, uh, margin of victory, rather in Michigan, is smaller than the number of Arab voters in the state of Michigan. So absent resourcing voters from some other demographic, which, by the way, Biden is not doing so well in other demographics. He's down with Latinos. He's down with Black Americans. Older whites are the only demographic where he's been relatively strong. And I'm not quite sure how that cuts with respect to his relationship with all of the union organizing that's been going on in the state as well. But putting that to the side, this is obviously a crisis point for him. This is a constituency group that can make or break the election. And knowing that's true, and seeing how the party is choosing to respond, is pretty remarkable. Although it's gotten some pushback—and we'll talk about that in a second—from folks like Tulsi Gabbard, what it has done to try to assure and shore up its credibility with the Muslim community seems to just be this task force, headed by Kamala Harris, that seems mostly performative, mostly kind of a superficial gesture to say Islamophobia is bad. Islamophobia is bad, I'm not sure that that's what the Arab voters that went from supporting Biden at 58% in 2020 to 16% today right,
0: I, are concerned about. Yeah, I, I worry the test force is actively menacing to uh, to people's uh, free speech rights. Um, again, the government has no right to crack down on Islamophobia or hate speech. Islamophobia is bad, and people should speak out against it. And they should speak out against anti-Semitism and racism and bigotry and all the other rest of it. Um, but it is not illegal to hold those views or to express those views. And um, and the government is just terrible at. at Telling um, legal speech from illegal yeah. speech,
1: and it's, I mean it's just missing the point. Those Arab American yeah. voters are upset because ten thousand people have been killed in three weeks in a, in a month of bombing in Gaza, like they're, they're because they're losing family members and loved ones because they're being bombed in Gaza because they feel like America isn't just a, a passive witness to that kind of a tragedy, but the United the President of the United States of America flew across the country to wrap his arms around a. Before this moment, who, uh, an already right-wing leader, who has been the subject of ire from his own community, to say that he has—he has un- they, he has their, israel has his unqualified support, as they disproportionately exact revenge for the horrific events of October 7th. That's a fundamental issue, and I don't think any kind of anti-free-speech task force is going to get to the bottom of that. But as paltry as Biden's response to Arab-Americans' concerns have seemed to Arab-Americans, They are being characterized as an overreach, an evidence of indifference to the interest of Jewish Americans and Jewish people in the diaspora by some people in the political community, namely Tulsi Gabbard. Let's roll this clip of what she had to say about it.
3: This is one of the main reasons, Sean, that I left the Democrat Party. It is clear and it has been for some time that they don't care about the safety, security or freedom of the American people, and they have become apologists for these Islamists... Jihadists. And Sean, I got to tell you, for those like me, the many Americans like me who enlisted in the military because of the 9 11 jihadist terrorist attack on us. This is incredibly offensive. You know, I've I've deployed three times to war zones in, in the Middle East and in Africa. I know how serious this threat of Islamist jihadism is. The Democrat elite, they don't care. They don't care. They Instead, they leave our borders wide open, which we know are being exploited by these Islamist terrorists, and they redirect our security infrastructure, our assets, our intel assets, not towards focusing on these terror threats that are coming through our borders and elsewhere, they're focusing them on fellow Americans. They're focusing.
1: What do you make of this turn? Well,
0: I mean, I also think Islamic jihad is a serious threat and we'd have to protect our country. Um, I think, I mean, honestly, I think part of the problem is that we have redirected resources, um, yes, for surveilling on Americans. It's very bad. I'm all against it. Um, but also, we've just gotten overly involved in other nations' wars, and it's not good for us. I, I don't know what. Um, uh, Tulsi, in the past, has been a a voice, in some cases, for uh, less interventionist, or at least less Um, nation-building. So I don't know if this is a—if she's articulating a different stance here, or what her views are on funding the Israel-Hamas conflict. My bottom line is I just don't think our U.S. security is enhanced. I don't think it's an America-first policy to be overly concerned with what's going on there and overly involved, the way the Biden administration clearly is, and the way many Republicans to be— Abundantly clear. Um, also, feel about the conflict that there's nothing more important than um, than the U.S. being heavily involved in Israel security and and a restructuring of the Gaza Strip. I, I say I don't think Americans take uh, actually take a lot of interest in that, or are their interests best served by their tax dollars, you know, paying for, you know, the the. Paying for death and destruction in an unending conflict that has lasted for hundreds of years.
1: What's interesting is that there are a number of people kind of on the left, uh, kind of independent left, who have been willing to give Tulsi a lot of credit over the years for being a relatively more anti-war voice, as they put it. And I've seen all all of those people defect from her as she... Um, uncritically kind of cheers on the siege of Gaza. Uh, Nico House, who I believe used to work uh, for at least one of her campaigns, tweeted, at this point, Tulsi is is coming off more anti-Muslim than pro-Israel. Danny Haifong, another person who at times uh, uh, credited—a journalist who at times credited Tulsi Gabbard, tweeted. At times beginning in 2015, 2016, I defended Tulsi Gabbard for taking, albeit selectively, an anti-interventionist stand on Syria and other wars. I was wrong. Gabbard is a monstrous opportunist and hypocrite. History won't remember her fondly. Lee Camp, another anti-war advocate um, and and journalist, says Tulsi Gabbard fooled many people into thinking she was anti-war. In fact, she supports most wars that don't harm U.S. troops. She doesn't care about humanity. She doesn't care about innocent children, blah, 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 blah. I I have not seen this kind of quadrant of the left be as critical as someone who is living in that kind of liminal left-right anti-war space, uh, as I have been seeing in this moment. And I think it's particularly because—I mean, the the, the signs were on the wall. Uh, Apparently she was very enthusiastic about the siege back in 2014 of Gaza as well. but this is, does seem to be a mask-off moment for many figures. Well, we've, see, we've talked about it a little bit with respect to RFK Jr. We'll talk about it more uh, later in the show. But for, for so many people, this particular conflict is exposing whether or not they're holistically well, anti-war <laughs> and anti-interventionist, or only when it is, I don't know, less core I, to I will, will say, political I hope interest. you don't take
0: this the wrong way, it's, people on the left seem very hard to please and seem very eager to find um, reasons to dislike or not get along is something I've noticed. Um, so it actually doesn't surprise me to see people who were once in good standing on these issues being tossed out. And I, not, you know, not to agree necessarily with what Tulsi saying about, I guess, the Democratic Party at large, but I have been taken aback at the level of, of uh, support for and endorsement of Hamas's actions on October 7th by um, not the form the Democratic Party formally, but by um, activists on the Palestinian issue on college campuses and elsewhere and yeah, maybe that's what has turned her off
1: well She did say that she is offended by um, How the Democrat I left the Democrats party um, because they support Hamas and it's fascinating the, the kind of allegiance and commitment to unithink you know, Uh, that some of these so-called free speakers want. Literally every single member of Congress, except for nine Democrats in the House, voted for a purely performative resolution to say, we're going to back Israel no matter what. The the entire American Congress pledged allegiance to a foreign nation. Only nine Democrats had the courage to stand up and say, we have our own country. We have our own. No, the, this particular resolution, there were a couple of right. bills like this. I think this one was just the one that the nine Democrats in the House said on. Not, well, Ma- not, not the massive too,
0: I think, but it doesn't matter.
1: Um, had the courage to come up and say n- no. And for her, someone who we really, I think, appreciated for having the ability and the courage to stand up against the Democratic Party and be the only member of Congress to endorse Bernie Sanders back in 2016, someone who used to respect sticking your neck out for something that you believed in, is now saying the whole of the Democratic Party is bad because of the few... Paucity of Democratic Party members who actually were willing to show courage in that moment I think that is why people have turned on Tulsi because they are people of principle Who are identifying that someone that they thought was similarly of principle is not that anymore
0: the left is mad at Bernie too
1: Yeah, because he similarly abandoned his principles if you don't have any it's really
0: easy to get along with everybody All right more rising right after this Have we reached the Ukraine war's moment of truth? Because according to this week's Time magazine cover story on Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, Zelensky's inner circle says the war is unwinnable. The article describes Zelensky as delusional for his failure to recognize realities of the battlefield and his unwillingness to consider peace talks with Russia. Now, a new article by entrepreneur David Sachs makes the case, that while Time magazine may be on Zelensky's side. Actual time is not. Zelensky himself had this to say on whether the war with Russia has reached a stalemate.
3: I hear you rejecting the characterization by your top general that this is a stalemate. Are you changing strategies as has been reported?
5: I believe
2: that today,
4: indeed, the situation is difficult. I don't think that this is a stalemate.
2: It's a, it's a check on the, uh, on
4: the, on the part of the Russian army. But before that, we did a lot. We had done a lot. We were in a difficult situation. They thought that they would checkmate us, but this didn't happen.
0: Joining us now to discuss is partner at Kraft Ventures and contributor at Responsible Statecraft, David Sachs. David, thank you for joining us. Good to be here. Are we reaching the point that many um, non-interventionists or uh, skeptics of increased and continued and permanent U.S. support to Ukraine, uh, a situation that was long predicted where Ukraine has no choice but to have a conversation with Russia about what the, the future of, of the contested region will be?
6: yeah that's exactly the point that we've reached uh what you've really seen over the past week or so is that the narrative dam around the reality in ukraine is completely broken and the truth is now pouring out it started with that time magazine article like you said Zelensky's own aides and advisors said that he was delusional for this uh but they said messianic belief in their ultimate victory uh one of his advisors said we're out of options we're not winning but try telling him that But that wasn't the end of it then you had this nbc news story basically saying that the war was deadlocked it was in a stalemate but even more than that officials said that if ukraine didn't negotiate by the end of the year uh the situation would become urgent you could almost hear the panic in these unnamed officials voices then you had uh the new york times just the other day talking about an open rift that's developed between Zelensky and his commander-in-chief, Zeluzhny. Zeluzhny did an interview with The Economist in which he said the war was a stalemate. Uh, Zelensky disagreed with that uh, in a press conference. And so now the two are openly at odds with each other in the press. So what you see now is that there is no agreement within even the Ukrainian senior leadership between Zelensky and his advisors, between Zelensky and his top general about what's happening in the war. But but I, I think that now, it, the, the truth is broken out, which is that Ukraine is not winning this war. The counteroffense has been a failure. And if they don't start doing something different, uh, they're headed for disaster.
1: Why do you think that this news is coming out now, that we're getting the Time magazine piece now? Certainly circumstances on the ground haven't been Tony for Ukraine for a very long time. If ever, do you think this is really about the United States making a choice between which of two ongoing wars now it wants to throw its resources behind, and this is all being provoked by the uh, fighting in Gaza? Or do you think it's more being driven by the frustration of people with uh, internal to uh, his own regime, like this general who's been speaking out? To what do you attribute this change in tenor?
6: I think that if Zelensky continues with this strategy of insisting on advances, uh, that there is a great fear on the part of the administration and within his own general corps that Ukraine will collapse. Uh, remember that since the counteroffensive began on June 4th, Ukraine has basically been on the offensive for about five months. They've been hurling their troops and weapons at these fixed Russian fortifications now with huge casualties and huge losses. And the thing that the time uh, profile makes clear is that these orders to advance, this insistence on continuing to be on offense to make progress of even just a few meters a day is coming directly from the office of the president. And what some of the sources say is that even if the US comes through with more weapons, more ammunition, and so on, The Ukrainian army does not have the personnel to use them. They say we don't have the manpower. So I think there's a great fear now that if Zelensky continues with this delusional strategy, that the Ukrainian side will collapse. And I think that the Biden administration is very interested in avoiding a situation like that, a collapse like that before the election. So I think they're quite unsure what to do now. And I think you're seeing, again, administration officials uh, now speaking more honestly about the situation because they see the urgency here.
0: Yeah, the Biden administration initially said that we would continue to um, to fund Ukraine's defense, essentially forever, for as long as it took. And there was even at times the mask would slip a little bit, and some suggestion of an interest in regime change in Russia, which obviously is a you know fanciful idea. Um, the Wagner Group effort collapsed; their leaders were blown up in a plane. Um, well, what do you think the Biden administration is, uh, is 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 thinking now? Is it going to publicly um, repudiate that previous line that it, we were we're just going to give Ukraine whatever it wants for as long as it takes? And there's some more realistic thinking is going to take hold.
6: I, I think it was always very unrealistic for the Biden administration to promise total support indefinitely for Ukraine. And, and Brianna, I think you're right uh, in mentioning the situation in Israel. The United States has other commitments all over the world, our resources are not infinite. And in fact, even before the situation in Israel exploded, we had the issue of the problem of the US running out of 155 millimeter artillery shells, the key type of ammunition in this war. This is why the Biden administration had to give cluster bombs to Ukraine, even though a year before it had said that cluster bombs were a war crime. So we already were stretched to the limit Uh, amazingly, in Ukraine, this war has really uh, depleted America's stockpiles and its resources to a much greater extent than I think the Biden administration had, had ever anticipated. Now we have the Israel situation on top of it. So I think tough choices are ahead for the United States, even if we send them another 60 billion. You know, we can always print more money, but you can't just print more ammunition and at least not anytime soon. So I do think that the administration is faced with tough choices they didn't anticipate, and they never should have made that promise to Zelensky of total support for as long as it takes. And, you know, the tragic thing here is that if the administration had been honest with Zelensky, maybe he would have taken the peace deal that was Mm -hmm. on offer in the first month of this war. They had a deal at Istanbul worked out. It was initial. There was a draft outline. It simply required Ukraine to give up its desire to join NATO. Had the Ukrainians done that, they would have held on to this uh, eastern portion of eastern Ukraine. They would have held on to the Donbass, and they wouldn't have had these hundreds of thousands of casualties. So the tragedy here is that if the administration had been more realistic, we could have avoided the tragedy of this war.
1: Yeah, really, really well made point there. Thank you so much for joining us today, David. Good to be with you. HBO's Bill Maher went head-to-head with astronomist and physicist Neil deGrasse Tyson over what makes a man a man, a real battle of the experts here. Let's listen.
4: Match more interesting for the viewer. So if we can split wrestling into ten categories and that becomes the wrestling match. But all men against each other. Correct, so, okay, so again, now I guess that. Sort of key point. Okay, <laughs> uh, okay. so all <laughs> I'm saying is, what is <laughs> it that makes the man the man? Is it the hormones? Okay, okay. Is it, if it's the hormones and you <sighs> decide to give yourself a different cocktail of hormones, I, I'm making this up, by Why the way. Would you, but, I'm not saying it should happen this way, it's a way to start thinking okay, about it. It would be maybe the track meets have, hormone categories and maybe giving yourself the wrong hormones is deleterious to your health would you not admit that do you think we can just safely do things like this so you feel this way because you're concerned about you're so deeply concerned about the health of the people who are trying to find their place on the gender spectrum you care about their health so much yeah, that you don't it, want well, them to it, go through that? It's not something that keeps me up at night, but when the right. subject comes up, mm-hmm. I care about them like I care about all people. Mm-hmm. So if there is you something... do, by the way. You think about all people. Of course. Yeah, I'll, is give, that a, that. Is I'll that, give you that. That's oh, okay. okay. You're being you sincere? You think about all people. No, I'm being sincere. Yeah, I do. All yes. Right. Yeah. Old school liberal. Yeah. Okay. So uh, I want all people to have, you know, make this very challenging world that we live in mm-hmm. better. So that's why there's honest debate about this issue.
1: Do you think Belmar wants to ban adults from being able to uh, get hormone therapy and transition if that's what they want to I do? I don't think
0: he wants to ban adults. Um, I don't know that he wants to ban anyone, but he wasn't even talking about adults there, right? He's talking about kids. I mean, that's where the debate is because we do restrict what choices but it's people are able to make at various Maybe stages. I missed it. It
1: seems like if you're talking about Wrestling teams and the like—we're we're not talking about ten-year-olds, right? High school
0: wrestling team, but
1: okay, some of whom might be adults.
0: Yeah, look, I don't—I don't even really want to limit people's right to put what they are, what they want to do with their own bodies, and if their parents co-sign it and a doctor co-signs it, it's just really none of my business at some point. Um, but obviously, where I don't know, Neil deGrasse Tyson will start wanting to make. Hormone taking categories. For the sports thing, and you know, we can just look at public opinion. Most people accept that based on biological reality is the sports team you should be on. I don't want to use that to limit, you know, people's choices in their self pursuit of happiness or anything like that, but you can't be on the same sports team. Is that fair? Can that be a compromise position?
1: Well, I think for um, non-competitive sports, like most high school sports, intramural, whatever. Did you play sports in high school?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Would you consider it, you to be a, yourself to be a competitive athlete?
0: Yeah, it was competitive. It was no, track
1: and of... that's not what I mean by competitive sports. What you, what you did and what I did in high school, Robbie, hate to break it to you, was not what I'm talking about with competitive sports. So most of us did what we did, which was play for fun, what it was, what it was, I mean, like...
0: It was a, I mean, one of my best friends who was on the track and cross-country team, you know, got a went to Cornell and ran at Cornell. Yeah, and Yokeem Noah went to my high school the... and
1: went on to the NBA. Yeah, occasionally that happened, okay, but, the point but is, I was not.
0: But none of, the, none of the, but the, the, the high school level, the girls cannot run against the males. Because yeah. they, will, they will all lose to every male. And so then they don't get to go to Cornell if they're not, because they're not placing in the race because they're all getting beaten. So they need their own team where they only compete against women at the high school level. In fifth grade, it doesn't matter.
1: So part of, part of why this is just such a silly conversation, how many trans kids went to your high school?
0: Uh, well, I went to an all-male high school. So it's a totally different Well, that doesn't category, preclude so the
1: idea of there being trans people there. Zero. I also didn't go to school with yeah. any trans people. And it turns out, given how few Relative to the number of the population that there are, most people didn't go to school with any trans people. Now, I'm sure it's different. It's increasingly uh, that not the case in younger generations of people where there's more acceptance and more people come out and those kinds of things. But, like, it just, it, it, it feels like maybe there's a debate to be had about whether or not um, the people who maintain this building should get some of this tape up off the floor that's obviously not being used for marks anymore. But I can barely bring myself to care about it. Because it's so infrequent, and then you hear the kind of bad faith of Bill Maher's arguments coming out when he starts to say things like, well, I just care about the health and safety of people. Well, that's why I asked the question about banning. I mean, if we're, if we're talking about people being able to make individual decisions, should I tell Bill Maher that he shouldn't sit there and drink and smoke on his set because it's bad for his health? Should I tell him you shouldn't do marijuana? Sap, like, I mean, Sagar an and Jenny was just tweeting about how there's these new negative yeah, effects of um, weed that have been reported. Da, da, da. Should I tell him not to do yeah, drugs anymore because it's bad business. for his for his right.
0: health? I'm not gonna tell adults what to do. I'm not even gonna tell kids what to do. I don't care. But it's the, the sports. It's just so obvious that they can, you can't have right. At some in in some competitions where there's not. Uh, strict sex differences, then it doesn't matter. But in high contact, highly physical sports, even at the high school yeah. level, it is competitive. You have to. You, we sex gender segregated these things for good but reason That's what and I was going to
1: was say. Is that there is a world where we just say we're segregating based on height and weight and strength and hormone levels, well, that's how much testosterone, what we're doing. We're right? But that doesn't necessarily map onto your gender identity. So what the what the as I understand it, the Olympics have done is to say well you have to have been on hormones for a certain period of time you basically have to have brought your body in line with some kind of mean average for the uh, you know gender expression that you are adopting and that can get to the root of a lot of the inequity not necessarily but it starts to get closer to the to the the real core of it which is our people at a physical advantage over other people now there was one little hang up and caveat in that which is that folks who are very, very good at sports at the actual competitive level tend to be genetic anomalies to begin with. So you have um, Michael Phelps having, what, like an extra rib or, or whatever it is and, a, and an arm span that is disproportional and not disproportionate and not what human beings normally have. You have the case of someone like Castro Semenya who was stripped, right, of her ability to compete because although she was... Born and identified always as a woman, her ho- testosterone levels were high. Now, is that just an advantage that she has, like Michael Phelps, that she was born with high testosterone levels? Or are we not going to say that it's not fair for her to compete against a woman because she's, she's she's not a woman? And so I'm not trying to say that those fringe cases also should drive the rule. But given that, I don't know, like, it, it does feel weird at this point, especially given the gravity of all that's going on in the world, that this is still um, Bill Maher's bugaboo. Well, there's
0: also... Um a difference between sex and gender identity, um, right? Gender identity—just you know, saying I'm, you know, what, what, what my pronouns are today—and obviously, young people are very um, uh, more likely to identify as ambiguously gendered or not want a specific gender. And if you're roping in all those people to saying they can compete on what they've decided today is their sports category, that seems like a recipe for utter. Disaster. Didn't I just say
1: the opposite? Didn't I just point to the? Um The Olympics guidance, which has to do with people actually having taken hormones to a a place and for a length of time that they are aligned, at least hormonally, with what? And
0: that might make sense. I'm saying it, but at the, again, the the level of student-athletes, it seems... Like, it won't have progressed to that.
1: Yeah, well, look, I hope that uh, Bill Maher finds some peace on this issue and that it doesn't haunt haunt his
0: dreams the way it seems to have been doing for the last few years. Your concern for Bill Maher is really touching.
1: I just care about the health of all people. You know, I'm a classical liberal.
0: More rising right after this. Brianna seems to have gotten into a little scuffle about free speech with Democrat-turned-independent candidate RFK Jr. Brianna, I'm just shocked to hear that you're feuding <laughs> with someone on Twitter. Um, it's really new behavior for you. I wouldn't
1: call it feuded, it, actually. He did seem to suggest he was open to further dialogue on this, so hopefully that happens. But for background, I called out RFK Jr., who has been a self-proclaimed champion of free speech. Four, tweeting in favor of sanctioning college students for their pro-Palestine speech and using threats to their post-grad employment opportunities as a cudgel to silence them. Now, RFK Jr. responded, saying, I support the freedom to express all protected speech. I encourage respectful discussions from all sides of the Gaza crisis. I don't support bullying, harassment, intimidation, and discrimination that has inspired fear in Jewish students and caused some to stop wearing namakas on campus. The First Amendment does not protect such conduct on campus. Administration should crack down on it. I look forward to talking in person.
0: Well, the Libertarian Party also joined the fray, saying in a tweet, we at the Libertarian Party support all speech, not just protected speech, whatever that means. Who decides what's protected and what isn't? Who decides what constitutes bullying, harassment, intimidation, and discrimination? Same government that locked us in our homes for months? No thank you. Bobby, you're falling into the exact same trap that was used by your opponents in an attempt to silence you. Hopefully, the overwhelming backlash that your reply has sparked will get you to rethink this terrible position you have taken. It's a pretty strong statement from uh, the Libertarian Party, which in the past has been has applauded a lot of what RFK Jr. has had to say on lockdowns and COVID and other topics, although has been critical of him from the get-go on some of his um, his some really unlimited support for um, for Israel, um, the Libertarian Party, many libertarians, myself included, um, just kind of oppose foreign aid um, right. as a general principle.
1: So to to be clear, what we're talking about here is RFK Jr. He retweeted a tweet from um, Bill Ackerman. Now Bill Ackerman's tweet is very long. He's the CEO of Pershing Square. Mm-hmm. Um, he he did he did one of these kind of essay format tweets that's very 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 long. Mm-hmm. He talks about what he feels like is um, Harvard University's institutional failures to protect Jewish students. His own daughter graduated in 2020, and interestingly, in this screen, he says he asked her what was anti-Semitism like on campus when you were there, and she said non-existent. However, to him, that is evidence of a, an emerging crisis, not of a status quo mm-hmm. of safety um, that I certainly experienced during my time there um, for Jewish students. I never heard any concerns or complaints along those lines. But if you get way, way down to the bottom of Bill Ackerman's post, he talks not just about what he thinks are generalized concerns at Harvard, which was fair and not necessarily implicating any free speech rights but what he thinks needs to be done to Harvard students as a consequence. is, this, And this is where we get into the argument that I'm making that now RFK Jr., perhaps he didn't read to the bottom, but that he is tacitly endorsing this kind of behavior. So Bill Ackerman writes, Because Harvard students are notoriously focused on their job and career prospects post-graduation, disciplinary actions by the administration for failure to meet the university's standards for appropriate conduct that become a part of the student's permanent record should serve as an effective deterrent to overt anti-Semitic acts on campus. No law firm, corporation, or graduate program will hire or admit an anti-Semitic or racist student, et cetera, et cetera. So he is Endorsing in a way that Vivek Ramaswamy did not endorse the idea of using career threats, et cetera, as a cultural to kids down the line. Now, you might say, well, if they're legitimately anti-Semitic, then why do we care? Another problem with this, e- this article, this essay that Bill Ackerman posted, is that it's just him characterizing things as anti-Semitic, many of which, specific instances, have been disproven. Uh, for example, there was this argument that um, pro-Palestinian protesters were getting physical and, like, pushing away Israeli— uh, pro-Israel Israel protesters, the reality was that there was a lie-in, like a die-in, that pro-Palestine protesters had done at Harvard Business School, that then Israeli uh, pro-Israel pro, uh, counter-protesters had come and started stepping over people and disturbing the people lying on the ground. And then the HBS pro-Palestinian students used... Um, like sheets so that they didn't come into contact with them as a as a protest technique, to nonviolently try to usher them away from the folks that were lying on the ground trying to conduct a protest. So those kind of events were cited as evidence of anti-Semitism, as well as a subjective view—and I'm sensitive to this—people subjectively feeling unsafe, feeling like they don't want to wear their yarmulke or uh, otherwise mm-hmm. display that they're Jewish. I'm sorry that they feel that way, but is their subjective feeling a reason why we should have policies that punish students, especially when the definitions of anti-Semitism, as we seen have been so subjective
0: sure I agree that uh, you know he says RFK jr says bullying harassment intimidation bad yeah I think of those course.
1: things are bad and that's already
0: whether they violate the First Amendment yeah. is another matter and that's where I unsurprisingly since I am a member of the LP <laughs> um, we ought to we got to be really careful the Supreme Court has drawn very clear lines and a and. A whole lot of speech is protected. It has to really rise to a level of threats of, vi- sp- threats of violence, specific plans for violence, before the speech becomes unprotected. Now, certainly, if Harvard, Harvard can also implement policies that are uh, somewhat, probably not ex- necessarily First Amendment compliant. Um, if there's, a, well, no, I guess this would violate is just defacement. Like if if students are going around and you know. Spray painting Nazi swastikas on Jewish students' dorms. Um, yeah, their campus should do something about that, and it should dis- it should investigate and discipline the people for responsible for doing There's that. No, you should be. I, I don't think anyone's saying otherwise. Yeah. Um, I, I right. So I will note that nobody is making an accusation of that kind. Um, I think again. I think it's it's perfectly fine if you want to characterize. If you want to take the view that the kind of activism you're seeing from the pro-Palestinian side is anti-Semitic, that's—you have the free speech right to make that claim. You just have to be a participant in that. You know, you can have your protest that says they're anti-Semites. They can have their protest that says you're genocidal. Like, that's what the college campus is. It's where where heated rhetoric is taking place and political organizing, and that's just—that's the way it's supposed to be, and there's no safety and protection for that. If it goes beyond that to people are being violently threatened or they're facing violence or they're facing— property defacement, um, you know, where they're facing harassment of the nature that they're not allowed to speak, where you have an event where maybe a a Jewish person or a Palestinian person is supposed to speak, and then the event gets canceled because uh, people turned off the lights or disrupted it. You can't do that either. So there are, like, very clear rules. There's actually nothing to argue about because these rules have been been adjudicated over and over again. Those of us who pay a lot of attention to the campus speech issues. No, like there's an advocacy organization fire that swoops in if it gets violated and explains to the university why they can't do X and they have to do Y. So we've like I've been down this road. We've been down this road so many times. There's not a lot actually like a lot of new to debate over what's allowed and what's not. Um, a lot of speech and behavior that might make you uncomfortable is in fact allowed, and we got to be super against giving license to authorities or especially the government to sanction more of it. They don't have that authority. Yeah. They lack that authority. And
1: in fact, what's interesting when you get to this Bill Ackerman stuff, there's a lot of stuff that I think that supporters of RFK Jr. wouldn't co-sign. And so that it is, it's curious that RFK Jr. himself co-signed it. He argues that the Harvard Office of uh, DEI basically is not sufficiently broad, big, or inclusive. Um, that it That's should... That's a it red should... flag there. Uh. Um, <laughs> he says that it does not specifically support Jewish or Asian or non-LGBT students that feels made up. Um. I mean,
0: <laughs> DEI bureaucracies are. I mean, you're not a fan of them either. These are the most notoriously anti-speech organizations there are. The more the more bureaucrats you have in the DEI field, the more you're going to get legitimate violations of students' speech rights um, on all sides. You're going to get. That's it's right. So, it's
1: so not, the, the way not. he gets to Bill Ackerman gets to. Uh, DEI doesn't cover Jewish people, is that there's—this is the quote from the, the DEI statement, we actively seek and welcome people of color, women, persons with disabilities, people who identify as LGBTQIA and those who are at the intersections of those identities from across the spectrum of disciplines and methods to join us. I mean, there's been a lot of debates about this over the last two years, cutting in both directions. But didn't Whoopi Goldberg just get in trouble for saying that Jewish people weren't people of color? Do you remember uh, that? Like not a year ago. Well, so like I don't. I don't I mean, know. If how you, mean, you want to say to me that and Asian people aren't people of color now, I don't know. It's, I mean, it's DEI, just a
0: bizarre statement. DEI people do. I mean, come from the progressive side, and um, you know. Fr- um, criticism of Israel is obviously a big progressive issue, so I'm I'm open to believing that there could be a blind spot in the DEI um, apparatus, but the entire DEI apparatus needs no, to be dismantled No, I'm asking
1: anyway. the question, the specific question. From that sentence, Bill Ackerman has derived mm-hmm. the idea that DEI excludes Jewish people and Asians, somehow, from the experience. Going on, There's a lot he then, of discrimination
0: against Asians on college campuses that has not been dealt with by. I mean, Harvard has a DEI branch, right, and but they can, were. Can we just stick okay, to fine, the, the point
1: ahead. here? Is that this man is reading a very inclusive sentence and going out of his way. It shows the bad faith of the narrator here when you start to dig into it. Um, moreover, Harvard did launch an anti Semitism task force in the wake of all of the protests and things that have been happening since October 7th. And his complaint about that is that not enough people knew about it. So they did something, but because, I don't know, maybe there's not that much community need for it. People weren't talking about it enough. It didn't, it didn't, it didn't, his daughter maybe hadn't heard of it, and that's what he's basing this on. He said that it wasn't big enough. It needs to be publicized more. I mean, the whole thing, and when I say this, this has to be at least like a 2,000 word uh, Twitter post. it, It reeks of the kind of grievance politics that so many conservatives for so long said were the problem on college campuses. It was all about snowflakes and the, um, uh, gosh, what was the name of the, 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 the something mind, the liberal mind, uh, the Jonathan Haidt book. The coddling that are, of the American the, mind. The coddling yeah. of the American mind. Yeah. That was the whole focus of kind of the anti-woke yeah. snowflakey crusade. And now... We're, the the argument here is that RFK Jr. again co-signed is my my daughter who graduated in 2020 who says she never experienced anti-Semitism on campus who said it was non-existent is is for some that yeah. that, that background somehow is leading me to say that Harvard needs to ratchet up its DEI practices and crack down on the employment opportunities students after they graduate. Totally against that, but again, we can.
0: You know, when we call out this kind of hypocrisy, you can also do show the other case, right? Like many liberals on campuses, a majority of them in multiple polls I've covered and written about and seen, said that free speech is does not mean hate speech and if you feel subjectively offended by speech, then the then the authorities have the obligation, the campus authorities, the bureaucrats have the obligation to make you feel comfortable, and affirmed, have an obligation to make you feel affirmed everywhere you go, every day of your life. And well, that was a really silly set of norms to try I, to I get front. I don't know enshrined. about that.
1: I, all I know, I'm, I'm a little long on the tooth now, but I attended Harvard for seven years in total, and I never once asked to be affirmed or felt affirmed, and nor was it the expectation of me or any of my other black friends or students of color that the university was ever going to come and weigh in on our behalf. I graduated the year that... Uh, Larry Summers made those comments about women in science, as a woman in science, and we all just, and trudged, out for that. And we just trudged through and got our diplomas and kept it pushing. Well, I no, but he got,
0: he got sacked over that. That's a famous example of someone suffer, getting cancel cultured, right, facing well, the... Sure, I'm talking about the experience of students on campus. Right, I'm saying their experience was corrected by that. That was the action they wanted, right?
1: So, in this letter uh, that Bill Ackerman wrote, he says, I was incredibly saddened to say that Harvard has also become a place where Jewish students are concerned about the threat of physical violence, which is likely has a corresponding impact on their mental health, while, among other insults, they are forced to sit next to classmates who openly and comfortably post, under their actual names, anti-Semitic statements and imagery on the student-wide Slack message system with no consequences for their actions. Again, no citations for what this anti-Semitism is. It's likely saying free Palestine. Now, in response to that, I said... I remember I sat next to a student who believed and argued forcefully in a property law class that stores should have the right to exclude black patrons if they didn't look right, if they just didn't have the right vibe. I sat next to a student who said that white people should be compensated by the government for lost housing value when black people move next door because of racism, housing properties go down, and so white people should be compensated for it. That was in a poverty law class I took. And I went to school with Stephanie Grace, who very famously made you know headlines when she argued that blacks are intellectually inferior. She went on for, a, for to a very prestigious clerkship on the Ninth Circuit and has been living a lovely life, I hear, since then. The black students, when that happened, not a single one of us called for her to empl- face any employment. Um, consequences uh, or be punished in any way, all we wanted was some of the black faculty members to sit with us and help us craft some statements and basically come to our defense. And that that is the environment, that has been the status quo at these institutions. So it is really interesting to see all these people come running and screaming about snowflakes. My experience is that we weren't snowflakes, that we were made of sterner stuff and put up with a lot of stuff, maybe the stuff we shouldn't have put up with. But the idea that these were liberal bastions that were catering to our every need, hey, maybe that's what they became after 2011, but that wasn't my experience in college or I mean, law school.
0: I, okay, but I've read, I, I, I don't think these demands characterize most students, but, I mean, we, we've we seen over and over again the, the, you know, the shutting downs of your Charles Murray. I, I, I went to a University of Michigan event to cover Charles Murray speaking, the students' The, the event couldn't proceed. They shut they turned off all the lights, they shut him down. They like that kind of thing happened to Heather McDonald and uh, Christina Hoff summers and um, and uh, Milo, remember that whole stuff? I mean, there was an endless parade of conservatives trying to speak on campus, students, angry activist students saying, this is hate speech and can't be allowed to continue I, mean, I, I really riot.
1: hear you. But I do feel like you keep straying away from this question of someone here is complaining that their student has to sit next to in a class. Not whether people protest a speaker. That's a different conversation that I'm happy to have at another mm-hmm. time. But this is a conversation about RFK Jr signing on to Bill Ackerman's statement in which he says his kids shouldn't have to sit next to someone in class with a different I'd political stumped, opinion as obviously. them. And that is dangerous. That is absolutely not what college is supposed to be about. No disagreement. Yeah. All right, stick around. We're rising after this.
0: Is Joe Rogan breaking up with Spotify for Elon Musk's X instead? Well, according to the New York Post, That could be an option for the podcast giant whose show The Joe Rogan Experience has an audience of roughly 11 million, dwarfing many mainstream media competitors. It's so large, it's almost unthinkable.
1: (laughs) Rogan signed an exclusive licensing deal with Spotify that paid him a reported $200 million in 2020, but with streaming companies cutting their costs as Rogan's contract comes to an end, industry experts said the podcaster is in the driver's seat. This also comes after Rogan and Spotify faced controversy during the pandemic when Rogan was accused of spreading misinformation after interviewing controversial figures on the COVID-19 virus. The Post has sought comment from Rogan and Spotify. Hmm. Nothing yet. Uh, So this is
0: all speculative. There's no real confirmation that this is happening or even being talked about. But it wouldn't surprise me if Elon would like to acquire Rogan for sure. They're, They're buddies. He's been on the show many times.
1: What we do know is that Joe Rogan signed this deal It's almost three years ago, three and a half years that contract is up. Now, Spotify maybe might feel like it got the good part of the bargain. People signed up for Spotify, I'm sure, to listen to Joe Rogan exclusively there. The question is, does Joe Rogan have an itch to no longer be so exclusive, to be able to post on other uh, websites like YouTube, where he was very, very popular? I mean, the clips still get posted, but it's not quite the same thing. People, Not everybody has Spotify. Some people want to listen in Apple Music or SoundCloud or whatever it is. Does he feel limited at all by that relationship? And would switching to X make him more exclusive to X, just like he was exclusive to Spotify? Or perhaps there might be some inducement if he's allowed to have a little bit more flexibility there.
0: Yeah, that's where the negotiations would come in. Um, People who've migrated, for instance, to Rumble, uh, who are in YouTube and moved to Rumble, um, Rumble, which is, I think, a, a great and important platform for uh, providing um, voices that get shut out of other tech platforms. Uh, we talked earlier in the show about how Steven Crowder, who obtained parts of the Nashville Shooters Manifesto, is um, is talking about that on Rumble because other social media sites have utterly, unbelievably censored the story already. So it's very important, but, uh, but Rumble, um, I, I know from when <laughs> we talked with Rumble about uh, potentially having Rising appear there in some form, um, they do want some degree of exclusivity, which I understand. It's their business model. It's, that's how they're trying to compete. Um, so people who are on uh, Rumble can can only post—it's probably different depending on how you work out your agreement—can only post um, some amount of clips on other social media sites. Um, I believe this affects Glenn Greenwald and Russell Brand and Kim Iverson to some degree. Um, I don't. Again, I don't know exactly what those terms are. So yeah, exclusivity comes up a lot in these kinds of negotiations. So it would be interesting to see whether Elon would offer something different. I do think um, X is not exactly set up right now for Mm -hmm. a lot of people listen. You can watch it, but a lot of people just listen to what Joe Rogan is saying. And it's not really a, a listening app right now, but maybe that could be fixed or improved.
1: Yeah, you know, trying to imagine how this would work. You're driving in your car. You have your phone open to Twitter and you're playing a Twitter video, mm-hmm. does it stop playing when your phone turn screen turns off and goes to sleep like YouTube does? You know, is it gonna be kind of funneled through the, um, mm-hmm. what do you call it, a chat, the the group, what do you call it, Twitter Spaces? Type of yeah, functionality right. where that will stay open as you scroll and go other places, but where does the video component come in? Are you gonna have the option just to listen only or watch the way that you do on Spotify? And I think, Importantly, can Elon Musk afford this? Is this a good business opportunity for him? Famously, Twitter is down 50% in terms of its value from $44 billion to $22 billion over the course of the year or so that he's owned it. Arguably, spending $200 rather on Joe Rogan is just a drop in that bucket. And if it really does get people to come over to the app and use it in different ways, maybe that would be well worth it.
0: Yeah, I think another thing Elon would potentially have to offer someone like Rogan is additional confirmation that you won't be, um, that w- y- you have creative control and you can interview contrarian people. Obviously, Rogan's already been able to do that to a very substantial degree on Spotify, but there was pressure on Spotify based on some of the, the COVID people, and they they stood up to that pressure. They they continued to platform. So he actually, it could be the opposite. He could feel some loyalty to Spotify because they didn't they didn't treat him badly. I, if well, I, if were, I'm recalling, right? They didn't no, take, am I recalling this wrong? They didn't take down were, specific episodes, did they? There were 70
1: episodes that were removed uh, back in- It was from the
0: backlog. 20, uh, 2022. From the back catalog, they didn't. As he made an episode, they didn't tell him he couldn't post. I, I, I genuinely don't recall.
1: I, I mean, don't if you know that seventy of your past episodes have been taken down, I don't know how much someone needs to tell you not to do a certain kind of coverage or how much you do it. What
0: I'm saying is, they might have. That might have been the agreement. They might have agreed to that when they made right, the contract. Right. Isn't that yeah. part of the problem? Well, anyway, that's what I was going to say. That Elon could offer um, that we're not going to do control over what you're saying and having on. So
1: interestingly, the 70 episodes that were removed were recorded between 2009 and 2018, so before COVID. So this wasn't COVID misinformation stuff. This was maybe MMA fighting, trans and sports discourse. Um, There were a number of episodes where he said the N-word that I remember getting pulled. I remember
0: one where he talked about Kim Kardashian in a commenting on her physically. I don't know if that was in there.
1: It, this all seems very quaint now, given, <laughs> given the kinds yeah. of things that um, are the focus of uh, censorship and cancellation.
0: Right. Uh, well, and, th- and that matters. You know, we're content creators, and um, having the ability to say what we want to say and talk about what we're going to talk about matters to us, and it matters to you know all the people we're friends with who make um, video content on various platforms. So again, a platform that can safeguard you and can say we're not going to we're not going to mess with you, and we're not going to we would never cave to a mob to take you down um, is very valuable. Maybe more, more valuable than $200 million? I don't know, but it's valuable.
1: Maybe. I mean, the one thing I would really be concerned about, as someone who really cares about my show and is, like, proud of my show and proud of my audience and the community that I've built, even if I made a lot of money, I would be concerned if it was no longer accessible to my audience because it was now on Twitter. There have been, But Twitter's know,
0: a completely accessible place.
1: No, I mean, in terms of the ease of use, not literally like a barrier, but are people going to stop listening to my show because mm. it's no longer convenient just to have it pop up in their Apple podcasts the yes. way that most of us listen to podcasts? Um, I, I, would, I would be worried about not people getting mad at me and leaving, but just a natural petering off of my audience because the outlet that I'm on is sort of obsolete. I mean, the Rumble people struggle Right? Rumble is still the ancillary app to YouTube. It's where you go when YouTube won't let you say something. It's not your first choice. And obviously, Rumble's trying to change that by you know, having folks like Glenn and Kim and Russell Brand go over to the, to the show. And I, I'm sure it's working in part. But who among us is saying, i got to log into the internet and watch a video. Let me go straight to Rumble? But that still tends not to be the case. It is so hard to dislodge people from these big apps because the value of the big app is that everybody is on it in one place, and when you put something in the search engine, you're going to get the top video for MMT mm-hmm. or uh, Will and Jada or whatever it is that you're looking up on uh, on YouTube in a given day.
0: Yeah. Well, we will see how that conversation proceeds if Joe Rogan moves the show elsewhere. Obviously, he could make huge waves if he was on or on Rumble or on Twitter or anywhere. But else, could
1: he? But. Do we look at the Tucker Carlson example? Can we not? Do we not think that Tucker Carlson is diminished in terms of his public influence now that he's not on Fox and now that he's exclusively on
0: X? I think it's diminished somewhat. Yeah.
1: And do you want that? He's not hurting for money, Joe Rogan. Are you really willing to take that hit?
0: Well, if you're, but if you're not hurting for money, you might. Say it's about a cause or something like that. But
1: people care. Like Tucker Carlson strikes me as a guy who cares about being heard and who cares yeah. about having influence. Yeah, I feel the same. I mean, way it wasn't about... his
0: choice, though. They fired. No, you. of
1: course, <laughs> of course. But I'm just saying that the impact of going on X as a content creator who values what you say and think mm-hmm. that what you're doing is important. I do wonder if that would be a sticking point for road. Frankly,
0: it. I do think X could do more to make itself a more appealing site for video or for something like podcast, um, with some in, uh, changes to the layout and some different choices.
1: But. Well, he'd have to hire some engineers to do that, and I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm
0: not sure that that's something that he's been up into recently. You got to spend money to make money. <laughs> That does it for us for today. Tomorrow on Rising, states across the country will be holding their elections for governor, state legislature, and other offices. And we will be bringing you all of the very important, very interesting results on the show tomorrow. Don't miss that.
1: Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while you're on the go, we're now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Not just on Twitter, but anywhere Anywhere. you listen to podcasts. (laughs) All right, take care.